there are two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. This is the end of the first creation story, perhaps the most uh, famous of them. Well, they're, you know, they're equally well known. Uh, but this is at the end of the six days of creation. So this is day six. All right? uh, and uh, I won't fill you in on what else has been created. I'm, I'm assuming you, you can remember that. You can look at it on your own. So listen to God's word. It begins with Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitudes. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through you we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's say that you are invited to the home of a new acquaintance, someone you don't know very well, but you're invited to be their special guest. And so you're driving out and you're out into the country and it's beautiful and you pull into this long, winding driveway, and there are beautiful fields, both cultivated and uncultivated gardens. There's all kinds of woods. It's a rolling hill. There's a stream running through the property. And you come up to the house, and, and, and you just look at how beautiful the house is. The door is sturdy and handcrafted like the way they used to make them. And you walk in the house, and it's not too big, and it's not too small. But you say, this is perfect. Everywhere in the house, you're both struck with its beauty and the function of its design. The craftsmanship is breathtaking. You compliment the owner. He smiles, not arrogantly, but not really humble either. 
It's a satisfied smile. And you say to this owner, this is an amazing house. This is a perfect house. The owner laughs, says it's not perfect, but it's good. And now that you are here, it's very good. And he pulls out the deed and says, I want you to have it. Now, what an amazing story. Right? We'd be overwhelmed. Now, you can extend the metaphor and says the house is yours. All you have to do is to manage it. And you probably would be so overwhelmed you wouldn't really ask what's involved in managing the house. But let's say you start asking, well, when, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to take care of it. And everything you possibly could ever need or want is available here on this property. Just a few things you need to be aware of. Okay, now you can use all the wood, but if you cut too much wood, you're going to have problems. This house is on a thousand-year floodplain. You cut all the trees, it's a 50-year flood time. There are termites. You can also use all the crops, but I would be careful if you overuse them. You have some livestock, there's some chickens out there, there's some cow, you can do whatever you want to with that. But, you know, the more of those you have, there are implications. Oh, and by the way, you have some neighbors, you have to learn to share and get along with them. It's complicated, isn't it? It doesn't minimize the gift, right? The gift is an amazing gift. But with the gift, to fully enjoy the gift, comes some responsibility, right? You know, what was the one thing that the virgins in the, or bridesmaids, you know, we would call them bridesmaids, in the parable that uh, Ryan read in Matthew, what was the one thing that they did wrong? Was it that they fell asleep? Was that wrong? No. They all fell asleep. <laughs> they didn't take care of the one thing they had to do. Just make sure you have oil for your lamp. Right? That's all you have to do. Make sure your flashlight has batteries. And that's why they didn't get, weren't able to come. Because the one thing they were supposed to take care of, they didn't take care of. And really, I think that's part of what... Stewardship is about it's taking care of what we have been given. Now, Christians sometimes, I think, get the Genesis story wrong. God doesn't say it's perfect, right? It's good, and when humans show up, it's very good. Okay. But it's not without its challenges, right? And that's part of what the call to stewardship is. It's to recognize that we have been given good gifts, but we have responsibility with those gifts, right? I was going to tell the kids, I didn't want to get any of you in trouble, but I was going to tell the kids a story about when my uh, family all thought we needed to have a puppy. Okay? And the vote was five to one. Uh, I was the one vote against getting a puppy. And I love puppies. Okay? And everyone's saying, oh, we'll take care of it. Okay? But I knew my family very well. I knew that if we got a puppy, there would be one person taking care of that puppy. Okay? And I was right. I was a prophet about that. Okay. <laughs> so there's a sense with, uh, with any good gifts, there, there comes this opportunity and responsibility. And that's really what this creation story is about. It's an amazing story of the good gifts God has given us 
and what our proper role is with those gifts. And, and that's, that's why the issue of stewardship, I mean, we, we have to talk about money. We'll, talk, we'll mention it next week, but, but money is such a small part of what it means to be a steward of God's creation, a steward of our lives, a steward of place, space, and time. Now, I think one of the important things about this story is something that's often missed, okay? Humans do not get their own day of creation. Humans and creepy crawlies are created on the same day, okay? And the Genesis story, again, again, it's, it's a very highly stylized poem. So it is meant to be taken kind of metaphorically, allegorically, okay? It's not a, uh, this isn't quantum physics, okay? Or, or this isn't a lesson in evolutionary biology, okay? It's a theological story. But one of the really important things that is said here theologically, and actually kind of lines up with what we know about genetics, is that creepy crawlies and humans are more alike than we want to admit, okay? Slugs and people come about the same day in God's order. And there's something a little bit humbling about that, okay? How many of you know what a bonobo is? Okay. All right. A bonobo, it depends on what side of the river of the Congo. We know, we're familiar with chimpanzees, but there are bonobos on one side and chimpanzees on the other. Do you know that we share 98.7% DNA with bonobos? So <laughs> there's a sense where we creatures show up at the same time in God's plan. And there's something that should be humbling about that, right? Now, I mean, I think bonobos are great, so it's not that we should feel insulted that we share all that DNA with the bonobos, but there's something that is important, that there's a built-in humility into the creation story. But that's only part of the story, because who is put in charge of the garden? Adam and Eve, well, it's not even, they're not mentioned here, but men and women, women and men, humanity is put in charge of the garden. We're to be tenders of the garden. Now, the word that even my translation translated as dominion is, is more of a sense of gardening, okay? You're supposed to, you know, in other words, you need to take dominion over the weeds in your garden, right? Uh, and I did really well until August, and then the weeds started winning this, this August, all right? But there's a sense of the garden needs to be tended. The garden needs to be taken care of. Now, I don't think any of us are climate scientists in here, okay? So I, when, when we talk about taking care of the earth, we don't have to debate on the nature of global warming. Or, or we know the world is getting warmer. We don't have to necessarily debate on the cause because regardless, Christians are called to be good stewards of the earth. And we're also supposed to realize there's a cost involved, right? If you take something from here, something else will pay for it. I mean, I think one of the tragedies, uh, did any of you grow up on a farm? Any of you farmer? Okay. One of the things, how many of you have ever killed something, butchered anything? Anybody ever butcher anything? Okay. <laughs> I have too. And... Um, I won't tell you my butcher story, all right? Well, some other time, okay? But 
One of the things that is, uh, I think, unfortunate in our way, in our modern economy and the way we get our food supply is that we don't always have a direct connection with what the cost involved is for our food. Okay? I had, I had a, a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law who, who bought a, a calf that they were going to raise for food. I said, all right, that's fine, but whatever you do, do not name it. Okay, next time I visit them, say, oh, we got to go feed Buster. All right, <laughs> well, guess what? Guess he didn't end up as hamburger. Buster did not end up as hamburger, because you name it, it becomes personal. But there's something, um, there's something that we lack in the sense that there's a cost. Okay, that, that plastic, that meat under that plastic was a living creature at some point. And so I think there's a sense where we, in the modern world, are so disconnected in so many ways from, from nature. Uh, matter of fact, the great German philosopher Heidegger thought that was the chief problem with modern humanity, our disconnect from uh, nature. But as Christians, we don't have that option, right? Because God is our creator, and God has given us these good gifts that we have to respond not only with gratitude, but with care. Now, we are cousins to the Bobos, and we are created the same day that uh, slugs are and, and tree sloths. But that's not the only story, right? Because not only are we children of the earth, but we're also created in the image of God. Pope John Paul II one time said, Since we are persons created in the image of God, and since we possess human nature, we are to praise the Creator on behalf of all inanimate creation and the animal world. Isn't that kind of a beautiful idea that we are the ones who are given the job to give voice to praise? A tree, a fox, a deer, a squirrel, a slug, they praise God just by being, right? And they do give glory to God. Psalm 19, right? Creation gives glory to God. But because we are created in the image of God, we give voice to the world, right? We also have the option of not praising God. We have an option of not taking care of the world around us. Now, this could be five sermons alone with the idea of that we are created in the image of God. You know, traditionally, Christians have thought being created in the image of God is means that we're spiritual beings or that we can reason or that we can self-reflect, that somehow our being in the image of God is around our personhood. More recently, people talk about the idea that to be human is to be relational, just like God is Trinity, then being created in the image of God is that we are not created as individuals, but we're created as male and female. And the idea around that is that we were created for community, for friendship, for relationship, for love, for family. Okay. But I think if you just read the text, the most important aspect of being created in the image of God is functional. God creates, and so as humans... We can create. God is Lord. 
and God places humanity in charge of the earth. Sometimes I think when we pray, Lord, help the earth, we should probably get a voice back that says, that's not my job. I'll save your soul, but I gave you guys the earth. How are you doing with that? Right? Doesn't God kind of turn it over? Here, this is yours. Now go be little gods. Go out there and create. And it's amazing. You can stop and think about how well humanity has done. You stop and think about the amazing, the amazing things that the humans have done. Just in our lifetime, uh, I mentioned a couple, you know, last month, um, I did the funeral of our oldest member at Feasterville. Harry was 105. Can you think of what has changed over the last century? And so humans, it's remarkable. I have more technology here than was available to the people who flew to the moon. I mean, they were using uh, what was, uh, Apollo 13. They're, they're doing calculations by hand to try to get back to Earth. It's really good I was not in that spaceship, okay? I never did figure out that slide rule, okay? <laughs> but that, that just shows you in terms of the immensity of, of technology. But also, the history of human race is the misuse of the Earth. For instance, why are we not supposed to eat too much fish? Fish is good for you, right? Okay. But why do we have to watch our intake of fish? Because all the stuff is in the water. Okay. Um, what about our air? I've known people who, um, who never were smokers. And got lung cancer. Now, there's a lot of different reasons you can get lung cancer, but it's what they breathed. Right? Right? So there's a sense where you can go on and on, right? We've done these amazing things. We've, we've done remarkable things in this world. But it has not come without a cost. You know, one of the greatest scientists chemist in the early part of the 20th century, and I think he won a Nobel Prize for it. When World War I broke out, he turned his work and was developing more advanced chemicals to destroy the lungs of British and French soldiers, his enemies. His wife came into his study. She was also a PhD chemist. How can you do this? We are, we are scientists. We're supposed to be serving humanity. And she goes, he goes, it's my job to help kill my enemy. And that night she took her life. Now, I'm not here to talk about the morality of science and warfare and things like that. Stories told when Oppenheimer realized what he had helped create in the first atomic bomb, 
that he went into his office, locked it, and wept bitterly. So that's the struggle, right? We are made in the image of God, and we're given God-like abilities. But how do we use it? Okay. So none of you may be a nuclear prize-winning chemist or physicist, but we all have power over the people around us, right? We all have the power to, for good or for ill, in our relationships, in our work, in our stewardship. And so there's a sense where God gives us God-like powers, but that makes us very dangerous, doesn't it? And God gave us dominion over the world, but that is a huge responsibility that humans have not always... Let Let me change it. It's an amazing responsibility that humans have always used well and have always used horribly. That's our history. Our history is mixed. And that's why maybe the most important aspect of stewardship from Genesis 1 through 2 is the the last act of God's creation. Now, Christians tend to speak about the idea that humanity is the crown of creation. And certainly we're told that, right? That humans are made a little lower than the angels. But Jewish sages remind us that God did one more thing after he created humanity. There was a penultimate creation after the creation of man and woman. And in Hebrew, the word's a little different than how we often translate it. But the idea that when God rested, God actually created the Sabbath. And you can see that the seventh day was an act of creation. Now, I remember as a kid, when I heard this, you know, as a little kid saying, all right, after seven days, you know, on the seventh day God rested, as a kid I go, wow, well, of course, that's a lot of work. You know, building the cosmos, he was busy. That was a long week, okay, you know, right? So there's, it's, it's natural to kind of take a, a literal kind of approach to it, but, but did God need to rest? No, God did not need to take a day off. But who does? And I don't know if any of you have Jewish, uh, uh, observing Jewish friends, but so much of the Sabbath rules, and some of them seem kind of silly for us. For instance, have any of you ever been in a Jewish uh, community or an area where there's a lot of Jews in an elevator on Shabbat, on Sabbath? I found out the hard way in Jerusalem that there is what they call the Shabbat elevator. Okay? And on Sabbath, which means starting at sunset on Friday, it stops at every floor. And I was late for a meeting one time, and I was on the 12th floor. Okay? And it stopped at every floor. Why is that? Because you're not supposed to make a circuit. Okay? You can't push a button. You can't light a light. You're not supposed to break. You're not supposed to create a circuit on Sabbath. Now that seems like a kind of a legalistic thing, but the idea is six days of the week you can go out, create, take dominion, be little gods. But one day a week 
you remember you're not. And you have to act in a radical way because we are so naturally inclined to think that my life is lived in isolation. One of the great lies of Genesis 3, when the serpent says to Eve, you will be like God. Well, they already were like God. God made us that way. And that works as long as you remember you're not God, right? <laughs> if you remember you're given God-like given powers, but remember you're not God, that maybe changes the way, not maybe, it would change the whole way you would live. So I don't have the right to use my power in an unlimited way. Maybe I need to use my resources in a way that recognizes that there are other people in the world. Maybe I need to live in such a way that I leave the earth better for my children and my grandchildren. How will this affect ancestors I don't even know who are alive? How does my doing this affect someone I don't even know, but who's also created in the image of God? Abraham Joshua Heschel probably the greatest Jewish thinker of the 20th century, said this. To gain control of the world of space is certainly one of our tasks. The danger begins when in gaining power in the realm of space, we forfeit all aspiration in the realm of time. There is a realm of time when the goal is not to have but to be, not to own but to give, not to control but to share, not to subdue but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things of space, becomes our sole concern. He goes on to say this. There are many who have acquired a high degree of political and social liberty, but only very few are enslaved not to things. This is our constant problem. How to live with people and to remain free. How to live with things and remain independent. Stewardship is remembering that things don't own us. Things are gifts to be used from God. Stewardship of time is to remember that time is a gift. And that all I have is a gift and that I need to remind myself that I am a limited creature. I have to create space in my life quiet, for reflection, for family, for prayer. You know, one of the great myths of our current time is, you know, we're supposed to work hard and play hard. Okay. Playing is not supposed to be hard. I think the biggest danger to our souls as American Christians is probably primarily the way we approach our time. Because I think our materialism is a function of our time as much as the other way around. And I think one of the things that we can really see as a gift is that God has given us this space, this world, to use as a gift. 
But the greatest gift of all is to recognize from whom it comes. What profits a human being if they enjoy all the gifts but never know the giver? One final note. Abraham Heschel's daughter uh, wrote an article uh, about her father. And he was a uh, professor at Hebrew uh, University in New York. I've known many of his students, and he was a beloved professor. And he was a strong social activist as well. He was one of the first religious leaders to march with Martin Luther King. Uh, but his daughter said, on Shabbat, not only did we not work, but we were not to talk about controversial things. So one of my father's chief rules was, no one mentions Vietnam during Shabbat. <laughs> and the whole point is that maybe even more than the need for rest and the need to regain our sense of what's proper in the material world, maybe in 2019, we need to create some space where we don't fight, where we don't judge other people, where we create space to practice God's peace and shalom. Remember that Christ came to give us peace. And blessed are the peacemakers, right? right? Maybe that might be one of the most important stewardship jobs we have as Christians, not only among ourselves, but in this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe with the words of the Apostles' Creed.